Welcome to our discussion today, centred on the poltergeist. We are going to be looking at some of the potential explanations for poltergeist phenomena, as well as some of its poltergeist phenomena. It becomes very clear that a lot of the cases are so similar as to kind of blur into one when you're reading about them. So I'm not going to be looking into the specifics of cases today. More what I will do today is outline a surface exploration of some of the potential explanations which, taken together, may give us an answer for some of this seemingly ubiquitous poltergeist activity. I will discuss a few illuminating cases, but the main focus today will be just the sheer breadth of potential answers to our question, our question being, what is the poltergeist? As usual, I'm not an expert in this field. I'm only interested in the topic. So any mistakes are my own and I welcome and encourage any corrections. This is just for fun. I am just tucked in on a Sunday under a nice warm blanket and I want to do something a little bit spooky. Thank you for listening and much love. The term poltergeist comes from the German for noisy spirit, but a contemporary and similar word that I personally really like is Rumpelgeist. <laughs> this is taken from Alan Gould's wonderful book on the subject, Poltergeists. This contemporary phrase, I feel, probably fell out of use because it just sounds much cuter and it sounds more like a petty annoyance than some of the cases that we read about where people are under very real danger. So Rumpelgeist didn't really explain these people's lived experiences. But I personally really like the term. However, I am going to use poltergeist from this point onwards. It should be noted as well that the phrase poltergeist even seems to have fallen out of use in Germany to be replaced by, again, a very lovely spook. So spook, or spook, this broadening of the term away from noise and this onomatopoeic kind of rumple reflects a blurring of the space between poltergeist behavior and all manner of other paranormal experiences. I would say poltergeists haven't really found their space in paranormal discourse. There are a number of famous poltergeist cases, but you just don't see as many people following them or developing on the idea as much as you do say, with haunted houses, for example. Despite this, poltergeist activity have been recorded for more than a thousand years, but they still defy explanation, despite being the subject of consistent study for over a century now by a few bodies of scientists and investigators who I will talk about later. But a typical poltergeist case will begin with raps on tables or doors or knocking on walls in the middle of the night. It will develop into scratches and sometimes a series of rhythmic taps which can respond to questioning but often are ignorant to any attempts at communication. This behaviour then intensifies. Soon we have objects, small objects usually, moving on their own or appearing to be carried through the air. 
moving at unnatural angles, seeming less like they are thrown across a room, but more carried by some invisible entity. Following this, usually we have the appearance and disappearance of objects, often personal effects. We will have money and personal items disappearing from within clothes boxes or wardrobes, reappearing in sealed rooms, inside or outside the house. Then we may have the appearance of water droplets or puddles or otherwise unnatural formations of water, rains of dirt or stones, and the destruction of property with no obvious external force. Crucially, with poltergeist behaviour, what sets this apart from typical hauntings is that there seems to be a focus, often termed the medium, a focus around which the phenomena centres, and it seems to require. This behaviour can sometimes occur in sealed rooms, in houses with no obvious occupants, but the behaviour intensifies or becomes more frequent around its locus. This locus or focus or medium around which the behaviour centres can sometimes be afflicted with mysterious bites or scratches, even wounds appearing as if from a, a blade. They often have their bedclothes ripped from them during the night, their bed and their furniture shifted while their weight is on it, and showers of larger and larger objects raining down upon them. But one thing is crucial to note is that despite how these behaviours intensify in scope, there is very rarely bodily harm they very much stay in the realm of annoyance. Even when people very much could be killed when large bodies of furniture are dragged around the room and pressed upon them, very little bodily harm actually results from it. Now, poltergeist cases have exhibited eerily similar characteristics across centuries and across thousands of miles between cultures with no overlapping folklore, and no kind of stories which you could reasonably assume have seeded the idea. In fact, there is honestly a relative lack of folklore involving poltergeists, then seems sensible considering how many accounts there are. As Alan Gould points out, we cannot reasonably suppose that those afflicted had access to a popularly available body of work on the habits of the poltergeist. In fact, the victims of poltergeist activity are usually down-to-earth folk, occasionally tending towards nervous disposition, but rarely with any background in spiritualism or the occult. They rarely have a body of work of which to draw upon. There is no specific inspiration for this that we can point to and say, aha, there you go. That's what they're copying. That's where they're getting their information from. The people afflicted by this, they're not typically the owners of large ancestral homes like we see in haunted house cases. They tend to be tenants and workers, the backbone of the working and middle classes, the kind of people who really don't have time for this kind of stuff and honestly tend to ignore it until it gets to the point where it infringes upon their life. As mentioned, as distinct from traditional hauntings, 
Poltergeist phenomena centres around one individual, the spirit medium, and often lasts from a few weeks to a few months, occasionally a few years. It can follow a person from place to place, but it seems to rely on the combination of that person and certain exterior factors. Often, if that locus moves away or their life circumstances change dramatically, the haunting can go away. They often cease on their own. Exorcisms or other religious interventions typically have little effect, and when investigating the phenomena, often the person involved has undergone recent trauma, such as the death of a loved one or significant changes in lifestyle, which make them more susceptible, for whatever reasons, as a target for a poltergeist. Whether this is stress due to acute shock or pent-up rage or frustration, the centre of the disturbance is often a child or teenager, either approaching or experiencing puberty and undergoing a rough period in their life. Hence, the most pervasive theories tend to hinge on a destructive emotional force, either turned inward upon the victim or outward, somehow producing the effect or the impression of an effect on the physical world around us. As Colin Wilson puts in his amazing book on the subject, Poltergeist, a classic study in destructive haunting, which has been absolutely indispensable to me during this. There is no record of a poltergeist taking place in a happy family. I should state at this point, I am primarily interested in the poltergeist from a social history standpoint, about what it says about the lived experience of those they affected. Parapsychology is the study of alleged psychic phenomena and takes the stance of the amazing potential of the emotional energy of the human mind and expands on it. The idea is that unused, this tremendous energy may be taken up by a marauding spirit and used, and it's described by Wilson in the same way that a group of rowdy kids might pick up a discarded football and kick it around and cause havoc with it for the mere sake of it, just as a mindless act to pass some time. Whether you believe that the power of the mind exceeds what we currently understand, as parapsychologists do, and can have a tangible effect on the world around it, or you believe it can have a transformative effect over what we perceive, so as to create the illusion of such, the majority of my discussion will centre on the poltergeist as related to the human mind. But I will touch on some other potential explanations or theories on the way. Common thought now runs along the lines that unlocking the secrets of the mind is key to understanding the secrets of the poltergeist. There are probably over a thousand recorded instances of the poltergeist haunting that we have on popular record. Around 40% of the US and UK population believe in haunted houses or ghosts of some kind. This figure comes from a study I'll be referencing later called Haunts, carried out by the Goldsmith University of London. They are one of the most common kinds of psychic manifestations. On the same level of probability 
or being struck by lightning or downed in a plane crash. So they are common, but not probable, I'll put it that way. But another statistic to keep in mind is that in 99% of poltergeist cases, or cases we characterise now as poltergeist, there is a pubescent adolescent or child present. Again, these cases typically have phenomena with the potential to hurt people or cause grave bodily harm, but in 99% of cases, there is no actual harm done. Psychological damage and stress, absolutely. But the spirit, or whatever entity it is controlling this, stops short of killing when they very well could. I'll make a point here that this is strikingly different from most film depictions of poltergeists, usually result in entire families dead, houses razed to the ground. In reality, or I should say in the social history that we have, you rarely see this level of death and destruction. But what you do see is the appearance of such, the appearance of great damage to the house, feeling like the walls are shaking to the ground around you, but no real damage is done, or at least very rarely. In the sources that we have, namely letters and diaries kept by those involved and those who investigated the cases, typically from a parapsychological point of view, it's clear that spirits involved often have no aim other than to amuse themselves. They come across as reckless rather than evil, just trying things out. Even when directly questioned on their motives, in cases where the entity seems to, one, have the power, and two, have the inclination to respond, they rarely give a reply of any real motive. These cases often don't have a question to be answered. The phenomena seems to work its way up from the minor, from the scratches and raps to small flying pebbles, up to moved furniture and loud disturbances. And then seems to often stop on its own or is stopped by the displacement of the spirit medium in the case. But the behaviour never moves in the other way around. It never starts out with the most intensity and slowly peters off. It always goes that it starts off the least intensive, slowly becomes more and more annoying until those involved take notice of this and start to record their behaviours and then eventually ramps up to the truly destructive. It gives the impression that the controlling entity, I'm going to use entity continuing on whether we believe it is a psychological impetus for this behaviour or some external force, whatever the controlling factor is, I'll refer to as the entity. And it gives the impression that this entity carries along by feeling out their powers and seeing what they can do, really pushing the boundaries of what's possible, rather than doggedly working towards some specific purpose. One possible explanation, which I love for its simplicity, comes from Wilson. And it says... When human beings lack a sense of identity, 
They often do apparently pointless things, simply to give themselves a sense of existence through action. This could explain the apparently aimless mischief of the poltergeist. Again, picking up this idea of emotional energy being like a loose football. It is picked up by some force and kicked around just to have something to do, just to have a purpose in that particular time, something to entertain people or beings who feel like they don't have a strong sense of self or a tight control over their own destiny and behaviour. I think this leads on pretty nicely to a subject which I personally really care about in this topic. And it's the entire reason I decided to look into poltergeists. So when I was looking into sort of spooky subjects to research, I have a big encyclopedia. I believe it's called the Encyclopedia of the Unknown. And the little section on poltergeists had picture after picture of just tiny little British living rooms piled up with a big mountain of furniture in the middle of the room. And they always seem to occur to just working class people in the kind of houses that I have lived in and grown up in. And these tales seem to be less told. They seem to be a bit more forgotten. I was looking at some of these pictures of people's experiences and these names don't ring any kind of bells. And I've been interested in the paranormal for a while. And it seems like people are less likely to tell these tales of the poltergeist. There are a few, obviously there are a few notable exceptions that really caught the public eye. But even though everyone seems to know someone who has a ghost story or someone knows someone who saw something moving around at the foot of their bed at night, very few people seem to have a poltergeist story. Yeah, often they are centred around, you know, really down-to-earth, working-glass people, and I feel like these stories are a little bit forgotten. So I'd like to look into that a little bit more. So I'm most interested in it as, unlike hauntings, often poltergeist activity seems to particularly afflict the working class, and it's often at their place of work, which is interesting, or in rented accommodation. So it particularly affects maids, servants, manual labourers, farmers and their young children in packed and cramped houses. When you read about these historical poltergeist phenomena, there is an absolute laundry list of people living in these small houses experiencing these behaviours. They rarely take place in these massive ancestral homes of birthright. More often they occur in broad daylight and those involved try to ignore this behaviour and get on with their lives for absolutely as long as they can. And it seems that always, almost as a last resort they bring in a medium or a paranormal investigator. But first they bring in their family, they bring in their friends and their neighbours and local clergymen, and it can seem quite a suffocating environment sometimes. It really paints this, in some ways romantic, in some ways quite stifling picture of the world of working class people in the past. 
and I consider myself working class. I I don't consider myself above this kind of living conditions. Like I said, it's it can be almost nostalgic in a way in that I remember living in this way. So confined to small cities or tight communities with really very few opportunities for travel or for enlightening experience. And again, in, in Wilson, he makes direct reference to this. He says that this kind of living may have actually robbed its inhabitants of a natural outlet for their energy or of a chance at some kind of enlightenment. Beautiful rural areas, such as the Scottish Highlands, he says, impress man and awaken in him some unfamiliar part of himself call it the subconscious self, the ego. What is there, for example, in London or Paris to awaken the intuitive power of man? Now I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but the main point he's asking is, without a natural outlet, will this awakening happen unconsciously, almost explosively, as an energy source seeks and needs an outlet to ground. So I guess another question we have to ask is, are poltergeist spirits? It's the big question. It really informs how you look at the debate around it. And one of the main theories, paranormal theories, which I will cover later, is that poltergeists or these kinds of disruptive spirits may be the spirits of ordinary people find themselves dead but may or may not know how it came about. So they latch on to some kind of emotional energy and impress upon the world of the living temporarily. Their effects are petty and unfocused and seemingly random but seem to gain in intensity as the spirit learns and expands on his powers. But they rarely seem to have a plan or any kind of superhuman intelligence, lending credence to the idea that they are human-seeded in some way. They are reacting and responding to things that perhaps as deceased spirits, they cannot enjoy anymore, such as food, um, comfort of sleep, the pleasures of the flesh. Often poltergeist activities are centred around these very day-to-day mundane activities. Sleep, food, cooking. Some people describe them as earthbound spirits, wandering around until they can find someone who can tell them what to do next. Again, Wilson puts it very succinctly. Ghosts may be simply people who don't know that they are dead. Now, Alan Gould's book puts together a chronicle of 500 exploratory cases of poltergeist hauntings. And these cases exemplify over and over again the unhappy lives and unhappy deaths often of working class people throughout the ages. They give the impression of a people whose deaths often came suddenly, as did ruin, as did destitution, 
This sudden flurry of destruction and fear was often endured for months on end, gaining in momentum all the time and ferocity, but often there was just nowhere to go. They didn't have the option of just moving out of this house. The only option they had really was to endure. They faced nervous sickness, financial ruin, joblessness if found to be the locus of the disturbance. They were in many ways trapped in this behaviour. And like I said, I, I think there is something to be said for the fact that we hear about these kinds of families over and over again in relation to the poltergeist. Spiritualism was a mode of thought coming about in the 1800s that brought about a potential explanation for some of this behaviour. For example, deathbed visions. Spiritualism studied deathbed visions as a phenomena that again transcended cultural and religious boundaries. They found in their research that people of all walks of life and all religions and races have reported near-death experiences in the form of deathbed visions, where the ghostly figure of a loved one or loved ones appear to guide one on to the world beyond. Naturally, the world beyond or what kind of lies beyond this varies between cultures. But this specific deathbed vision seems common amongst all, irrespective of what it leads on to. Although naturally, the testimony of such near-death experience is in doubt, their numerousness and similarities imply, according to spiritualist views, that a vast percentage of people who die quietly in their beds are guided from this world to the next by people they loved and who have preceded them, or at the very least they have an experience that is interpreted as such. Just as this would explain the ratio of, well, the comparatively small ratio of earthbound spirits to the volume of dead, presumably at rest, it would explain why the majority of poltergeists seem to appear as or affect working-class people. From the volume of sudden and violent deaths, even relayed as tangential to the main story of the poltergeist haunting, unfortunately, those affected were less likely to die in beds surrounded by loved ones than their upper-class contemporaries. They were, unfortunately, more likely to die suddenly and die alone and it would be a lie to say that this isn't still the case today. I'm now going to go over a brief outline of the history of poltergeist study and the different kinds of bodies of people who put their stamp on poltergeist thought through the ages. As mentioned, spiritualism was a new religious movement that was formed in 1851 with the basic idea that the dead exist and it is possible to communicate with them through practice and effort. I say was, the movement still exists. Um, so I don't want to imply that it doesn't because it does. 
It came out of a popular parlour trick from the 1840s in which the upper classes often held seances and attempted to contact spirits of the dead. This parlour trick was wildly popular in America and quickly spread to the UK with even the reigning queen, Victoria, and her husband, Prince Albert, holding hands and experiencing the kinds of spirits rapping on the table and the table levitating before our eyes, the kind you are familiar with from etchings from the time. It was absolutely the thing to do back then was to hold a seance in your parlour room. But out of this came spiritualism, which is an attempt to sort of form it into a more codified form of thought and belief. Naturally, it was quickly denounced by scientists as a return to a kind of medieval superstition. In those early days, it was said, most level-headed people treated spirit phenomena as a new fad that would probably go away, exactly as the World War II generation felt about the flying saucer craze that started in the 1940s. But nevertheless, it remained hugely popular, particularly in the middle and upper classes through tours and meetings. It didn't really have any specific texts, but many of its proponents were women and supported other causes, so it already had a body of things to rally around and unite themselves. They tended to support women's suffrage. They also supported the abolition of slavery and were involved in efforts to improve conditions for Native Americans. This was criticised by others around the time as simply just trying to soothe their own guilt, but nonetheless they felt themselves physically and literally haunted by the spectres of those who were previously wronged by them. It was a common sight to see Native American spirits at their seances and meetings and it was a very real focus for them. In general it weathered its storms of controversy rather successfully and counted among them various famous names such as Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes stories and Thomas Edison and it was particularly comforting during the time of the American Civil War as it seemed to give grieving families one last chance to say goodbye as the advent of photography really brought into people's homes just the reality of how brutal a battle was taking place in their country every day. These seances were, again, a little bit nostalgic And, again, just a little bit comforting if you can trick your brain into believing it. But these seances were attended by Abraham Lincoln, even. Because like UFO phenomena, which I've already talked about, spiritualism really developed and changed with its times and really responded to what the people needed from it at whatever time. And their story is woven through the story of the poltergeist, and we will hear more about this later. And predictably, 
it absolutely surged in popularity at the outbreak of World War I. As Wilson states, according to the teachings of spiritualism, it is remorse or desire for vengeance that often keeps spirits bound to the earth. In this context, people were more inclined to interpret the seemingly paranormal in humanistic terms, and hence the poltergeist transformed from the devil or demon form of medieval tale to something approaching human. And this scientific reaction to spiritualism paved the way for two scientific modes of thought and inquiry, namely parapsychology and anomalistic psychology. Parapsychology comes from the place of belief in the paranormal and tries to prove true all manner of psychic phenomena such as telepathy, clairvoyance and psychokinesis. Conversely, anomalistic psychology comes from a place of disbelief and tries to prove false supposed paranormal behaviour and discover its naturalistic explanations, presuming, of course, that there are naturalistic explanations to be found. Similarly, SPR, or the Society for Psychical Research, was created in 1882 as a direct response to the claims of spiritualists and created, in fact, to investigate these terms. It agreed in some ways that spirits could be contacted and organise its efforts into a more scholarly investigation into seances and paranormal phenomena than spiritualism's loose set of beliefs. It investigated a wide range of paranormal happenings, but noted that nearly all ghosts mentioned in their records looked like ordinary, solid human beings. So it seemed that probably most people had come into contact with a ghost in their lifetime without realising it. According to SPR, with this view, the gifted, or just those with the time to practise it, could train themselves to see ghosts in the same way that you can tune into a specific frequency with the right equipment. In their view, ghosts cannot respond to onlookers but exists as a kind of recording upon their surroundings, caused by strong emotions, as if strong emotions could be unconsciously recorded in matter. Crisis apparitions were another theory of theirs, that humans had the ability to unconsciously project an image of themselves over great distances, often at the very point of death or when afflicted by grave illness. It was said that those in tune to spirit phenomena were able to see these images and know intuitively that something had happened. But there is one issue here in how it relates to our investigations into poltergeists. A lot of these themes make sense in terms of how a poltergeist or why a poltergeist might be formed but it ignores the fact that you didn't have to tune into poltergeist phenomena. You didn't have to be particularly into spiritualism or you didn't have to hone your craft to see it. It often afflicted just level-headed people, people tradespersons who are about as far away from the socialites of the 1840s as you could get 
and as we said, didn't have time for this kind of thing. They didn't invite it into their home. It didn't happen in a village hall in front of an audience, but in people's bedrooms and in their kitchens in the light of day. This theory of the power of strong emotions appears later in our exploration. It has a distinct advantage in that it's fairly easy to understand, and it kind of leans on human beings' tendency to assume that we are the centre of our universe and the most important thing going on in the world at any one time. It is a belief that, for that very same reason, is fairly easy to understand. It shares a popular belief in the strong power of human emotions, and it suggests even a familiar method by which these emotions might be recorded and later viewed with those with the correct method for decoding them. Like you could be in possession of a ghost TV or radio. It has also been suggested that these recordings could cause in some people a hallucinatory effect, corresponding to the impression of a haunting or a poltergeist. Like I said, I feel like these theories really are enduring and quite comforting for people because it does kind of soothe the ego of the human mind a little bit. It is easier for us, I think, to go along with a theory that puts us as bang, slap bang in the middle of the spiritual world. As our experiences as important and enduring as though they should be recorded, they have a reason to be recorded because it's more comforting to believe this than to believe that we live in a world that doesn't care about us. It's comforting, but again, it has a real clash with our ideas of what a poltergeist is and what a poltergeist does, because it reserves the world of the living for the living and paints the idea of a world where the dead can't rudely impose upon us. They can be recorded, they can be viewed, but they cannot move into our house and start moving around our things and climbing into our beds. Naturally, that can't be said for the poltergeist. Thank you for joining me in part one of the poltergeist story. Stay tuned for the next part where we take a deeper look at the context from which poltergeist cases started to find popularity. In the meantime, find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts.